Well, there should be Bibles in front of you. We want to look up Luke chapter 17. We'll be in verses 11 through the end of the chapter in verse 37. I feel like any time that I stand here, it's in response to this chaotic week that I've just had. And I'm not sure whose fault that is, probably mine. But it's this season where things are just stacked on top of each other. I don't know if you feel that. I don't know if there's a pressure around you or you feel a season or you've been there where it's just like we have to just get through this at the other organization that I work for back-to-back ministries our director Todd Guckenberger is known for saying that it's like feast and famine some days you just don't eat you just go and go and go but then at the end of that season when there is food we all just sit down and we try to eat so that we can go again I don't know that that's a healthy work approach um, but it was him who controlled my schedule this past week Uh, Our global directors for our orphan care organization were in town. We have every two years, we have a big event. It's a fundraiser type banquet. In the history of Back to Back, it's always been this banquet type thing. But this year they decided to do something different. They decided to do just everything as experiential as possible. We have food from all of the countries that we serve so you can taste the food. We have photo galleries. Our friend Mikey, who's actually here today, created this virtual reality experience so you can put some goggles on your face and automatically you're in Monterey, Mexico and you can see the world um, as if you were on a mission trip. So it's this high energy experiential event and then it ended with, you know, it's 2018, so everything has to end with a song from The Greatest Showman, right? Like, that's, that's actually what happened. It feels like just this thing. I'm like, really? Yeah, we're so 2018 that we had to involve Greatest Showman in the moment. We had a choir from Lincoln Heights Baptist Church, plus this vocalist that wanted to be on American Idol when he grew up. And it like, all combined together into this big epic moment. And that was Wednesday, 1,400 people that we're entertaining on Wednesday night. And it was madness, and it was fun, and it was crazy to see how many people can be linked together with one story. And that was what was overwhelming me on this Wednesday night, is as people were coming in, and I was seeing them from so many different walks of life. My youth minister from when I was in second grade is walking in and bringing a group with him that had been on their first mission team to Mazatlan last year. And they're meeting people that I've been working with for the last 10 years, but I've never seen them intersect. And just watching all of these different spaces come together in this one place, it felt so kingdom-like in the space. It felt like it was more than just a gala or a banquet. It felt like family was coming together. And as I'm watching all of these people that I've known for years, and I'm recognizing that something or someone or some cause has brought them together too, I had a moment of just being overwhelmed. And it was that youth minister who I had met in 1986. He had sat next to me the first time that I had met him. He sat next to me and talked me through the plan of salvation. That's the kind of church I grew up in. Um, And he laid my hand on a thing and drew around it, and we had to draw like what each finger meant in the plan of salvation. And he had this moment that he was talking to me about Jesus. In 1986, and a week later, my dad was going to baptize me. So here we are in 2018, and he and I are standing together talking about this cause 
on behalf of Jesus for orphans. And then this other guy, Ben, walks up. And Ben was in my student ministry, and he had grown up. I had known him since he was in third grade. And there we are, three of us standing next to each other in the same space, talking about this adventure. And, and Ben's getting ready to come on staff with Back to Back and go to Nigeria. And, and we're looking at each other thinking, in, in 1986, there's no way that this 19-year-old youth minister and this six-year-old kid have this, can write this, like, In 2018, we will be standing on a crossroads mason foyer talking about how God has brought us into this story for orphaned and vulnerable children around the world. Like, we couldn't have planned it. We couldn't have imagined it. I probably would have written it way differently. But there we were standing in this space, and here are these three men just, like, wiping tears from our eyes. And people are like, what is wrong with them? Like, the thing hasn't even started yet. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where it was just like God kind of peeled back a little bit of heaven for you and said, this is what authentic community looks like. This is what kingdom looks like. This is a story that's way different than you would have written for yourself, but it's the one I'm writing for you. And on that night, in that moment, I got to see a little bit of how stories just kind of come back together at the right moment. This week we've also had 30 different directors from all of our sites around the world. We're in a room together for at least 10 hours a day working on leadership and strategy. That's a lot of opinion. And it's a lot of leadership to be in a space. We had leaders from Nigeria and India and Haiti, Dominican Republic, three sites in Mexico. We're all in this space And what I'm realizing throughout the week is that uh, sometimes you need something like a kingdom to keep you together because the way you see the world is really, really different. You would think that a group of Christian leaders who are called to orphan care would see the world through the same lens. But by Friday when we were saying, what are your favorite parts of the week? One of our Mexican directors raised his hand, he said, the thing I loved about this week was the conflict that we had all week. That was his, like, takeaway moment. We fought all week long. (laughs) Like, okay. But we're still family, is what he ended it with. But we're still family. There was a lot of leadership in that space. And so the way that they decided that they were going to, like, kind of create safety and family environment for the leadership was they took us axe throwing. I don't know if you've done this before. They, like, legally done this before? <laughs> Maybe in the heat of the moment you grab something in your kitchen and threw it at a wall one time. So this is a space where they take you in and you, they teach you how to throw an axe at a target. Not really my thing, but I'm in. And so in lines, all of the directors are throwing. We're so competitive that, I mean, really quickly, the trash talking starts. Some of it's in English, some of it's in Spanish. The Nigerians win because no one knew how to translate. And it was just fun for a couple of hours, but I want you to know that there were three winners at the end of the night, and they were dubbed Lumber Lords, and I, I represented you well. Like, we got one of the three. So, I am now a Lumber Lord. I know this because they put this big stamp on my forearm that said Lumber Lord. And so, I went home, and my wife was like, what is on your arm? I'm like, I don't know. But they stamped me, and she's like, Lumberlord, okay, not a word we would ever call you, but here you go. And so I give that to you. But as I walked away from that night, I thought, it's interesting how kingdom language just translates into spaces. Like, who uses that word anymore? Like, you are the Lord of Echo, right? Like, we don't make that a job title. But in this lumber 
axe-throwing space, we go into this kingdom language again. It just seemed to be all around us this week. Which for me, I probably just picked up on it because that's the theme of the last message that we were going to land on in this Jesus and series. is Jesus and kingdom. What's it like? How are we supposed to dialogue with it? You've probably heard if you've been around church for very long that we build his kingdom. We're citizens in his kingdom. We're part of his kingdom. We are welcome in as children in the kingdom. We're heirs in the kingdom. Everything is this kingdom language, but we don't really talk kingdom language unless we're at renaissance festivals or throwing axes at walls with other staff. So what does it look like for Jesus to use this kingdom language for a community that exists in 2018? That's what we want to dive into for a few minutes, and that's why we're in Luke 17. So if you'll look at verse 11, this is what it says. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee, And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. It's an interesting story to start with. I didn't choose it. Luke chose it. He's prepping us for a question that's going to come about the kingdom of God, but he preps us with it with a story of a moment that Jesus did. We don't know if this was chronological. We don't know if this was a sequence that Jesus saw 10 lepers, healed them, and then immediately gets asked this next question that we're going to dive into. But Luke said this question that is asked should be seen through this context. And he wants to tell us a story first. And so he says, Jesus is walking down a road, and there are ten men with a skin disease. I know our versions say leprosy. We don't know that it was leprosy. But they were all these men who had a skin disease, and so they had created a tribe amongst themselves. And they stood on the other side of the road, on the other side of the highway. They didn't run over to Jesus on the path and run up to him and get in his face and say, look at us. See our skin disease. Would you help us? Would you have pity on us? Instead, they stayed a long way off, and there are these men men just shouting, Jesus, hey, you master kingship, kingdom language. Have pity on us. This is painful. This is agonizing. We can't fix this about ourselves. We look weird. We're in pain. And we have to stand on the other highway away from everyone else. And it says that Jesus tells them, go to church. Like, isn't that like what you, you, go, go to your priest. Shouldn't your religious father, your rabbi, your priest, shouldn't, this is an issue for him, right? Like, go, go to church. And so the men turned to walk toward their perception of what kingdom would look like, and they're healed. 
And then Luke adds some more layers to this for us. And he says, but only one when he was healed. He didn't make it to the priest. He didn't get to the church. He didn't get to kingdom. He turned and went back to Jesus. And said, you have healed me. He praised him. He acknowledged him as God. And he worshipped him there. And Luke says, oh yeah, and by the way. It was a Samaritan, which is Luke's way of saying it was the guy that doesn't belong anywhere because he's diseased, he's only half Jewish. We're not even sure that the priest would let him in. He wasn't welcomed at church. He wasn't welcomed in the pure community. He wasn't welcomed in the hierarchy of what it meant to follow God. He was outcasted before he had this skin disease. He was outcasted because of who he was born into this world by. He was outcasted when his mom and dad chose to give birth to him and he wasn't pure from either side. He was already out. And Luke's in on it already of saying, I want to tell you what kingdom is. Here's this question that's about to come to Jesus. But I want you to know before we ask the question that this is the type of person that Jesus heals. And this is the type of person that he celebrates. He heals the one who's calling out for him to heal him first. He heals the one who says, Jesus, master, have pity on me. Have mercy on me. I can't do this anymore. I can't live like this. This is lonely. This is not fair. This is painful. He calls out to Jesus and Jesus responds and he doesn't hold that back. He doesn't look for the one who's going to come back to him. He doesn't say, who do you think I am before he heals them? He offers his healing in the midst of their desperation. Not looking for a response, not looking for affirmation before he gives his gift freely. He just gives it and says, be healed. And nine keep walking. But Luke wants us to know as well, he didn't hold back and say, well, you, you are already outcast. You're not full. You're not accepted, so I'm not going to fully heal you, Samaritan. But instead, he heals the one who was outcast first, and that's the one who is most gracious. The one on the fringe. And that's the one who comes back. And so before Jesus gets this question, he wants us to know, I'm the God who says, I will have pity on you when you ask and acknowledge me. I'm the God who does not look at your status. I don't look for what group you are a part of. I don't care who your mom was and who your dad was. Your history doesn't matter to me. I will give and give healing freely. No matter how far you've been outcast. Now ask me your question. Verse 20 it says, Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, Here it is or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is among you or in your midst. I'm not sure if your translation says within you. That's actually the wrong translation of the Greek. You'll actually see a little letter next to that word. And then when you look at the bottom, it says, or among. Those are massively different things, right? Something within me and something among me. Those are like different, right? So he's saying here, 
The difference, and really theologically the difference here is, is if he says he's within you, he's talking Holy Spirit role, right? Like Holy Spirit is within us, which we know came at Pentecost, dwelt within at that point forward, and that the Holy Spirit was going to dwell within the believers in order to call them out on mission. But Jesus isn't talking like the Holy Spirit yet. He's talking pre-crucifixion language at this space. He's talking, I'm with you. Like the kingdom is here. It's with you. It's in your midst. But where we get tangled in the Greek is that within, feel, it feels so personal and feels so human in the space. It feels like we're with you. So we have within you, in your midst, around you. Jesus is really just talking about himself. He's giving this quality to himself. I am the kingdom of God. It's why in Mark chapter 1 verse 14 he said the time has come the kingdom has drawn near to you. Like it's time I'm here. So go and proclaim the good news I'm here. He doesn't see kingdom as a place really. He sees kingdom as this community with him. He sees kingdom as the presence of him with us. So what Luke is really trying to do for us in the first passage is to give us this perception of, I want to show you the cause of the kingdom. It's the outcasts. It's the ones who can't heal themselves. It's the ones who can't fix themselves. It's the ones who feel like they were born alone. It's the ones that haven't been accepted and that aren't sure where to go, but it's the ones who want to call out and they want to be healed and they want to be changed and they want to be transformed. So the cause of the kingdom is us. It's our brokenness, it's our wounding, it's our biology, it's our belief system, it's our physical illness, it's all of these things that have happened to us. The the cause of the kingdom is us. But then when the Pharisees, which from what I understand in this space, the Pharisees aren't actually, they're not, it's not a tongue-in-cheek question, it doesn't, it's, this one doesn't come across as a trapping question, this actually comes up as an authentic historical question about the kingdom of God in this space. This is coming because this isn't a question that has only been posed to Jesus. This kingdom question has been happening over and over throughout history. It's the question that was posed once we left the garden. It's the question of Who are we and how do we belong? It's the question that Moses is answering and moving the people from Egypt into the promised land. It's the question that judges were asking. It's the question of kings. What's this kingdom of God going to look like? Why does it look like it's physically in charge for 40 years and then physically in bondage for 40 years? What does it look like to have been in bondage for the last 300 years or 400 years? The Essenes actually would set up camp in the desert waiting on the kingdom of God to show up in the desert physically, arm them so that they could take over. And there were all kinds of conversations as to like, what does kingdom look like? Like this wasn't a Jesus question. So the religious leaders aren't trying to trap him in this, in this statement. They're actually saying, what, what do you say that this looks like? Because we've heard all your other teachings. What do you say the kingdom of God looks like? And Jesus' response is, the kingdom looks like me. It looks like everything that I've said to you. It looks like everything that I've done in your presence. It looks like everything that I've promised you. 
So we see the kingdom cause in the lepers. We see the community in this statement around Jesus. And then he goes into this little apocalyptic section of the now and not yet that is the kingdom of God. That Luke adds this. We're not sure if Jesus spoke this directly in in a row, but we know that Luke pieced this together. And he then says to the disciples, starting in verse 22, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Don't go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So prophesying his crucifixion and his resurrection here, right? Then just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. These are really, really encouraging stories, right? It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you that on the night, two people will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, and one will be taken and the other left. And then their response out of desperation is, where, Lord, where's this going to happen? Like, this sounds scary. And his response, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Really good touchy-feely Jesus moment, right? right? Like, you're like, yeah. So in this last section, what I, would, what I would say that Jesus is doing here is he's saying the kingdom is a cause, a community, and it's this consecration that hasn't happened yet. It's coming. It's why he uses wedding imagery of the bridegroom coming back for its, his bride. He's He's going to consummate the marriage. He's going to consecrate the kingdom at one point, but not yet. And he's warning us of saying, don't pretend like you're married to me yet. Don't pretend like this is forever yet. Because there are going to be times where the kingdom is both here and it's not yet. Where I'm here, but you don't yet have all of me. That you might, you might get burdened by this world and you might stop with me. You might be like all the people that were around Noah and they're having the fun and they're having the feast and they're having the marrying and they're having all of the celebrations and they forget about me. And then I come, just in a moment, I come. And they weren't ready because they'd forgotten about the cause and the community. And so we're separated. And it might be like this Sodom scene where the satisfaction of my own kingdom outweighed the satisfaction of his. The community that we could create within the context of that satisfaction is what I was looking for. And so I forgot about the kingdom. And so Jesus is warning, it's not consummated yet. Our relationship has not been consecrated yet for forever, but it's coming. I will return and it's coming. 
which is what he gives us in Revelation, right? Like later. The disciples don't really get it. Half the time, I don't really get it. But I know kingdom is this. So when I see the cause of Christ and I join it, I'm living kingdom well. When I see the cause of Christ and I judge it, I'm living kingdom poorly. When I see the cause of Christ and I oppose it, I'm not living kingdom. When I see the community of Christ and I join it, I'm living kingdom well. When I see others isolated from community, not living kingdom well. And when I oppress those that are outside of community, I am opposing the community that is kingdom. And when I go seven days and I haven't thought about kingdom, and when I go a month and I haven't thought about kingdom, and when it becomes a year and I haven't thought about kingdom, I'm in a dangerous place lacking the consecration of what kingdom is going to be forever. Jesus and kingdom are one. Passages that are scary like this of, am I in it? The only answer to them is really just to say, do you see the cause of Christ around you? Do you join it? Do you see the cause of Christ in you? Have you praised him for what he's done? Do you see the community of Christ around you? Do you fight for it? Do you protect it? Do you keep it whole? Do you see those outside of the cause of Christ, the community of Christ around you? Do you invite them in? Do you welcome them? No matter their differences of you, because the kingdom is the community that's centered around Jesus. And do you look forward to a day when this burden won't be ours to carry anymore? Do you long for it? I had lost my longing for the forever part. This year I've really struggled with it. The day today has been enough for me. But Friday morning, I had to walk into a scenario that reminded me of it. I hate role play. Anybody in here hate role play? Raise your hand if you hate role play. Great. So we're going to do a role play. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do a role. I would not do that to you. So I walk into this room, and like the worst words you can say to me are in there. Please leave your coffee outside. I'm like, are you, you're kidding me. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. Do you know what you're asking for? I can't function yet. Like, we would like you to leave your coffee outside, set your cell phone next to your coffee. Anything that would distract you, you have to leave outside of this room. I'm like, in the name of Jesus, I don't like you. We will reconcile later. And we all go in and we sit down. And the leadership had thought it would be good for us to remember what it was like to be outcast. Because when you play roles in leadership, sometimes that gap, like you spend more time typing in things about the resources that you're going to give to the outcast instead of being able to be shoulder to shoulder with them. It's kind of the nature of the nonprofit organization. 
Sometimes it's the nature of church, the distance, because of all the things that need to get done. And as a leadership, most of the time we're managing teams who are investing in orphan and vulnerable children. But for most of our sites, we don't have the margin to be a caregiver who receives a child who's just been separated from their parent. So they decided to role play for us. My job, become a 16-year-old boy who is selfish, traumatized, and has been sexually abused in his early childhood. Like, I had, that was my role. Yay for me. And I had three brothers and sisters, and they walked us through the transition from being with your biological family into an institutionalized orphan, orphanage, and we were separated. And each one of us was given a, a wooden heart, and they said, if at some point you feel that your heart is broken, just break your heart. If you feel like at some point you need to give your heart away to someone else because you've left it, maybe it's your mom, maybe it's a caregiver, you can give your heart away. And as the oldest, so my brother is 14, my other brother is seven, and my sister is four. My four-year-old sister is the facilitator and director of Back to Back as a whole, like her name is Beth Guckenberg. So I have my, like, my boss is my four-year-old sister now, so it got weird real fast. But all of a sudden, this, this feeling of protectiveness came out inside of me. So I was delivered to a children's home, and immediately my first thought in this role was, run away, find your siblings, start a family on your own. So I manipulated another person to do a distraction in the children's home, and I ran away. And as soon as I ran away, I found Beth, and Beth reached over to me because I found her, and she gave me her heart. Almost impossible for me to keep it together at that point, but we're in a role play. But I knew I was selfish. Like the piece of paper that I've been given said, you are 16 and you are selfish. And so she gave me her heart. And in my mind, I'm like, in order for this role play to work, I have to leave you. I have to abandon you too. And so I work out this scheme and I get all of our siblings back, which by the way, someone whispered in the thing. They were like, no one's ever run away in this simulation before. And I was like, yes, I'm an overachiever. So they actually didn't know what to do. I was like, is it better for me to go back to the children's home? They're like, yeah, for this next part, could you just go back and then run away again? Because we're not sure how to do this next part with a runaway. <laughs> You're kind of ruining everything. And I'm like, yes, overachiever. <laughs> but here's the thing. It says we're supposed to go back. We've met our, we've had a, um, a visit day with our bio mom. My seven-year-old brother decides I want to stick with mommy. My 14-year-old brother looks at me and I say, are we gonna, are we staying together? Because if so, let's go do family together. And he says, it's safer at the children's home. There's a caregiver who's starting to take care of me. We should go back. And Beth is standing between us and I have to be selfish. And so I take my heart and her heart and I give it to my 14-year-old brother and say, then you take him and you go back. I'm out. And in that moment, just that role play, that feeling of saying, like feeling of abandoning someone, the feeling of like all, like the shame just, I mean, it was just like, this is not a role play anymore. Like triggers are happening. We're all in tears in this room. It took us another hour to debrief it and a lot of coffee because it was rough. But Friday morning, I thought, 
this isn't a role play for a lot of people that I know. It's not a role play for a lot of people that I love. This is real. And that forever part of the kingdom became real again for me. This week you have a lot of decisions to make. I have a lot of decisions to make. We could role play this week out. And we could just make it fake. We could find kingdom and cause and community. And I'm going to challenge you that in this week, as you prepare to go to polls and decide who should be in, who should be out, who should we follow, who shouldn't we, who should lead us, who shouldn't we, would you please take the cause and the community into that booth with you and think through it? Because the decisions that we make aren't just for us. They're for the Samaritans too. They're for the skin diseased. They're for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're all around us. And we have decisions to make. Can we make them kingdom in the context of city? And can we think about the forever implications as we're making decisions, as we're building community. And the question that I leave you for homework this week is to ask this of yourself. What expectations have I put on the kingdom of God? And are they the cause of Christ? Are they the community of Christ? Are they the consecration of Christ? Or are they expectations of my own kingdom? Because this isn't a role play. Our friends and the families that are around us, they're yelling from across the street. Who will have pity on me? Let's see them together this week. Let's pray. Jesus, I just praise you for this moment. Praise you for the message that continues to teach me. Invite me into your cause. Invite us to your cause again. Invite us to your community. Please keep the door open around us and remind us of the forever of this, the way that you want to consecrate and consummate your kingdom forever and ever. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.